0: everybody this is eric krasno and you are listening to the plus one podcast i want to thank everybody that's been tuning in and everyone that's been sharing the show with your friends um, it's been great to hear from all of you I've been getting a ton of emails with guest suggestions a lot of which i've already recorded or plan to record but there's also been a lot of new ideas so i appreciate that and i urge you to keep those suggestions coming again you can hit me up at kraz plus one that's k-r-a-z plus one at gmail.com You can also follow us on Instagram. It's just at Kraz plus one. I want to give a shout out to Osiris Media. They helped me put this show together. They have a lot of other great shows and content. You can find all of that at OsirisPod.com. And if you haven't heard enough of my voice, you can also hear me on the current episode of Comes a Time. It's a really great podcast. Uh, hosted by Otiel Burbridge, a good friend of mine who 's also been on this show, so uh, we had a really good conversation on his podcast as well we 've got a really great guest on the show today, Mr. Michael League. A lot of you probably know him from the group Snarky Puppy. He's a great bass player, but he's also a really great songwriter and arranger, a producer. He has won three Grammys in the last few years and has put out numerous albums from Snarky Puppy, from his other project, Bocante, and has produced records for David Crosby and a bunch of others. He also relocated to Spain in the last couple of years and it's a really interesting story of how he ended up there and how he plans to produce and record a record every month um, in 2021. So excited to get into that and a lot more but first we're gonna take a quick break to hear from our sponsors all right he's an amazing bass player composer arranger producer artist and three-time grammy winner i'm excited to welcome today's plus one sir michael leake well, I appreciate you taking the time, man. Are you in the studio? Is this your studio that you're in now?
1: Yeah, my in my house, yeah. Oh, okay. And where is that? I live in uh Catalonia in northeastern Spain, like 1 hour from Barcelona.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. I forgot that. I thought you were still in Brooklyn. I knew you I knew you had spent time there, but you're you're fully there now.
1: Yeah, I bought a house 2 years ago and renovated it like an old, you know, st- like stone ruin and and just kind of like,
0: yeah did my thing to it, so. Is it crazy just watching it? I mean, are you paying a lot of attention? It's hard to pay attention to the news in the U.S. right now.
1: I I pay more attention now than I ever have.
0: Right. I I, I would say that's true for me, too. Although, from 2016 to a few months ago, I
1: tried to avoid it
0: <laughs> as much as possible. You might have
1: done the right thing. I mean, it, you know, the, for me, the real weird the weirdness was just not being there for any of it, not being there for BLM, you know, for the protests this summer, not being there for this scandal, not being there for this, you know, like, and just reading it in the news, it really, like, it's the first time, (laughs) I mean, this sounds really, is embarrassing to say, but it was living outside of the U.S. and looking in at it, um, was the first time that I realized why everyone in the world thinks that we're totally out of our minds. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because right. they do. They might not say it to you, but they really, they really do. And but maybe that I don't know, that, that probably happened for you too, maybe, right? This over these oh, last yeah. four years. Maybe it was the first time you
0: right? Uh, You know, musicians, we tend to spend a lot of time in Europe because they appreciate what we do sometimes a lot more. And uh, I remember being in Italy for like a couple weeks and like this was, I think this must have been pre 9-11. And after really getting to know a group of people there, starting to understand why even back then they had a certain, you know, vision of what an American was like. Um, because I lived yeah. in a bubble, you know, I was like in New York City or California, and you know, it wasn't till I started like touring the South with like my band, and and till I really like saw that the majority of our country is not like me, and, and the rest of the people that I tend to like be around, um, but now it's just been magnified. Um, times a million, uh, but but yeah, you know it's embarrassing. I, you know, for the first time, I'd say in the last four years, I started being embarrassed. You know, for to be an American as in, as I traveled, um, been, which yeah. is a weird thing to say, um, especially with how rich the culture, American culture, is. You know, musically and artistically yeah it's been a weird time you know it's it's been a really 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 weird time and I, and like you said it's it's not necessarily better today but at least it's like hopefully some sort of you know hope is there and some some sort of oh, turning yeah. point you
1: know? i mean i know i i absolutely think it's better today it's it, i mean i guess what i meant to say is all you know our problems aren't all just going to go away i mean joe biden is as like neutral and centrist as of a <laughs> Of a candidate I know. that you could possibly have. And and the fact that he is being called an anti-American radical communist tells right. you how far things have moved over the last four years on one side of the spectrum. You know, I mean, the right. left has continued to get more liberal, but the right has radically moved, right? Yeah. They call it asymmetrical polarization, yeah. you know, right. that one side is 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 like heading all the way there, and I see i mean I see it in my dad, you yeah. know my dad yeah. raised me, I'm a military brat, you know, so we grew right. up in the military, you know firm household, don't you know lots of rules get in line, which i you know I never had a problem with, but you know we also grew up like my dad was very, and my mom, both of them very like super against all things racist and, 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 you know, really trying to raise my brother and I to be good, generous people with integrity that, you know, I played sports as a kid. My dad's big thing was like, know how to lose. Right. You know, he was never that dad in the stands that was like, you know, you're not eating dinner if you don't hit a home run. You know what I mean? He was, I always really viewed him as like a figure of integrity, you know? Right. And. The last four years, you know, I mean, it's a thing, you know, now he's telling my brother not to watch mainstream media and he thinks Trump's an ass, but he still voted for him. And he thinks all the, you know, and it was like, wait, what is like, you raised me to be a certain thing and you're supporting with your vote, the opposite of that thing.
0: Yeah. The, the hypocrisy that you see in these arguments, it's unreal, man. It's unreal. Um, yeah, and the power that the internet has had um in dividing. Yeah. I mean, it's also it, it's not the internet's fault, <laughs> but uh no. it's it's unbelievable how much credibility uh some of these theories have gained and how many followers um of some of these, you know, conspiracy theories. It's it's crazy. And it's and the, the really scary thing is as you start to run into people, you know, and risk and respect, you know, which is kind of twisted uh, my view a little because for so long, I just wanted to argue, you know what I mean? And, and yell at the people that thought these crazy, what I thought think are pretty crazy (laughs) theories, but now like there has to be a conversation because there's just no other way. You know, there's too many people believing um, a lot of these theories to like not allow a conversation to take place. Cause I, I at this point, I also want to know, like, how, what led you like right. to believing that in, in like a stolen election or even on the far end, like QAnon or whatever. Nine, yeah. I just want to know, like, how can we have a conversation? Cause we're all, we all need to live together. You know, I think that's the reality
1: right now. There's this yeah. incredible book. They take a contentious issue. And in this case it's abortion. Yeah, And they take people on two sides, very, very opposite sides of, of this situation, this theme, and they try to get them to talk to each other right. and, and, and to have a, an intelligent, productive conversation about it. And the tactic used is find something that both sides agree on and work from there. And in the end, the thing that both sides could agree on was that there are too many unwanted pregnancies in America. Isn't right. that deep? That's wow. not what you would think. I All mean, right. when I heard, you know, I, I mean, that really sh- surprised me. It's not what I would have thought would be the thing that both these it's sides would agree on. But it's true. And, and they could start to have a conversation about how do we address this problem together versus yeah. how do I convince you that I'm right? And it's not just the right that's taking in only what they want to hear. It's like my le- my liberal friends are way more liberal now than they were four years ago. You know, right, right, and
0: also you know the media. You know, I'm not going to shame all media, but it's also really hard to. F- There's only a few outlets that I really, really <laughs> can get real information from. Um, so I'm not saying it's not entertaining, and but but you can't you can't really accept all of it purely. It's it's a weird place. We can, we just had a son. Uh, a few months ago, which has also changed our view of a lot of things, just as far as, like, how much do we subject him to? Um, I mean, he's going to have to know about everything as he grows up. Um, And it's going to be interesting how we look back on this year in history. I hope we look back on it as a crazy year, and I hope this isn't just, like, how things (laughs) are going to be, you know, Um, in terms of the pandemic and how many uh, just— Unbelievably poignant things that
1: have happened on so many levels. I just keep thinking about my dad. Yeah. You know, yeah. because for me that's like like what you said. You were like, well, I couldn't believe that people that I knew believed that right. there's that there's a, a pedophilic Satanist conspiracy in right. in the halls of Congress. I think it's a it's a it's a it's a um, a sobering moment when you realize those people that believe that shit are not those people anymore. They're your right. boy, your boyfriend or your landlord or your dad or whatever. Yeah. And I don't think that is just going to go away with a with an uneventful presidency. I think I think the there is now a market, a proven market for people who want to hear this stuff. Yeah. And money moves everything in our country. I think probably more so than anywhere else in the world, definitely than I've ever been. You know, people talk about music all the time. They're like, you know, I have a bunch of friends who are, you know, liberal conspiracy theorists and are like, yeah, you know, the media wants to keep flooding the radio airwaves with bullshit ass pop music to keep us dumb so that we don't think hard and we don't question our government. And like, for me, I'm like, no, they just play that stuff for us because it makes money. (laughs) Right. and i'm 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 convinced that if every radio station and every major record label in the world knew that by plugging the greatest music that's happening in 2021 they would become unbelievably wealthy they would stop all the stuff that's on the radio right now and they would play that music right. it's right. you know i don't think it's like necessarily that there's this sinister like diabolical plot i think it's just this thing of this is profitable for us and if we sacrifice our ethics you know, not, right. I'm not saying that that's a good thing to do. I'm just saying it's different from coming at the thing with this plan of we want to keep the people dumb and cheap and, and we don't want them to grow or think for themselves. It's I think it's more just like, well, you know, let's just make some money. We're going to make a lot right. of money. Like Fox yeah. News, you know, number one news news station in America, you know, it's incredible. I mean, these people are people are making money, man. You know, I mean, God knows if, if, you know, Tucker Carlson believes what he's saying, but he definitely believes what's showing up in his bank account. Right, right.
0: Yeah. I mean, I have trouble believing that Trump believes what he says.
1: To- yeah, yeah, who knows? God knows. <laughs>
0: it's strange to think that when you and I were growing up, I think I'm, I'm a little older than you, but you, when you went from news channel to other news channels... It's the same. It was the same. The the fact, like, if you could predict, or if you told me at, when I was, like, 13, that like, like, what was going to happen now, you know? Like, you'd wake up one day, and there would be riots in the streets with masks on, um, and that one channel was going to say one an opposite thing about who these people even were. I would never believe you. Never believe you. It kind of it's weird to think back of like the 80s as 80s as like a utopian kind of time, you know.
1: Yeah, but I I think that's the that's the thing is, you know, we could have conversations about this in 1996. Right. Because right. everyone was receiving was receiving the same information and they could yeah. divine what they want from that information, you know, they can form their own opinions and say, this is because, but at least there was that common ground of this is what happened. Yeah. You know, or maybe just the, you know, the US was spinning everything equally, you know, like all the news stations were spinning what was going on in the exact same way. But at least, even if it was all bullshit, at least we as a people could kind of, agree on some right. common pieces of information and now it's like i don't know man i mean i don't think it's irreparable but this is going to take it's going to take a lot of time and it, and it would have to take a massive refocusing of 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 the mass media industry and no one yeah. is going to do that if they're banking if they're making money right. there's right. no right. Right. out of the goodness of their hearts R- Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan are going to you know Like all of a sudden, no way, you know, MSNBC, all of a sudden is going to stop bashing Republicans instead of simply reporting what's happening and letting us make up our minds. Like, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's pessimistic maybe, but.
0: I'm so curious in Spain, are they just like
1: laughing at us? Are they scared? Like what, what, what are they, what do they think about this? I mean, the, the conversations that I have with people here and the messages that I get from people who aren't just here, but other yeah. places in the world. It's a mixture of it's sad comedy. I guess that's the best right. way to put it. Right. It's like people right. who are like, "Wow, I'm really sorry, but this is f- super funny to watch that your president did this, you know, but it's yeah. really sad." It, depending on the person too, they, you know, yeah. they, some it affects some people more than others. Some people just think Trump is like a clown and they laugh at him and other people, you know, are saddened by the way that he and his administration have made people suffer. But in general, I mean the funny thing is I'm telling you man I live in a village there's 450 people here right you know my five best friends are hunters farmers lo- uh one sells firewood I mean this is like the most country ass place you can be and yeah. everyone in the village thinks that our nation is nuts and Trump is an idiot. It's
0: so interesting. I was just talking about this with a friend of mine is like, is in rural communities in, in Italy and in Spain. That's like, from what I've seen, like people, it's it's just so culturally different than you when you find people that live in rural communities in the U.S. Like people are into food and wine and all these like yeah. into in the culture. Um, and in the U.S., it's, I mean, it's just a different culture. I'm not, you know, it's, I remember before, Trump was elected um, when we were laughing about the prospect, we were actually happy that he was the candidate because we oh, were yeah. like, this guy's never going to win. Always gonna and when I did a tour that October in the South and between Georgia, South Carolina, Ooh. and North Carolina. I remember one at one point, just like I was awake for the whole drive watching and it was just Trump signs the entire time. And it dawned on me. I remember I got back to New York and I was like, listen, guys, this is not a joke you know, and it took, it took that experience and I got home and I remember I was like the only one in my little crew that was like, man, watch, watch what's going to happen here. This is not what you think.
1: I didn't, I mean, I I was way behind, way behind it. I didn't see it until it happened. And then it happened and I didn't believe it happened. You know, I like took a nap and woke up trying to, trying to (laughs) undream. Yeah.
0: How did you end up in this, in the town where you, where you are?
1: Eight years ago, I had to write a symphonic piece of music for Snarky Puppy and this orchestra based out of Holland called the Metropole Orchestra. Yes, I, I'm a big fan. And, yeah. uh, and it was a record called Silva. I had to write like 60 minutes of music for us. And I was living in New York at the time. And the, and the manager of one of the managers of the orchestra told me, like, you know, you're never going to write in peace there. You should go write somewhere in the middle of nowhere. You know, I, I, have, I have like a summer home in this little tiny village in the middle of nowhere take the keys, go there, spend Christmas there, whatever, you know, take two weeks and write. And I came and I didn't speak, definitely didn't speak Catalan. And and I didn't even speak Spanish and, you know, very few people here speak English. And I came through and and stayed in this house and basically was just alone the whole time because I didn't, you know, just go to the grocery store and say a couple words I knew in Spanish. And then one day these two guys came to the door and they knocked and they were like, come to the bar, (laughs) you know, because there's one little bar, there's no restaurant. There's no anything. There's just, like, two churches and a bar. That's all there is. Wow. And the bar isn't 100% legal, but it's, you know, it's, like, kind of like a don't ask, don't tell yeah. thing right, with right. the cops. And I, you know, just made friends here, and I kept coming back to visit. I kept spending, like, every Christmas here, and I'd come for the summer party. Every every town in Spain has a, a like, they call it the big party, you know, every right. year where, like, one week they hang. and uh, And I kept coming and coming and coming, and then finally this house went up for sale, and I was like— man you know for this price like i might be able to buy a toilet in brooklyn right you know it's just it was obscene the and so i was like like 10 years in new york i've done it let's you know cool like time for a new thing i want to focus more on producing and composing and 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 also just like living because you know how it is to live in new york it's like you get caught up in the flow in the current and then you wake up and like 15 years have gone by and you know and you've had a blast, but you're like, it's a different life. It's a different kind of life.
0: I did it. I mean, I went to California, so it didn't necessarily get cheaper, but, but the quality of life got <laughs> a lot better. Yeah, I want to get a little bit into, well, there's a lot to get into because it, um, I, the last few days I've been listening to your catalog of music, which is so dense. I mean, it, 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 look, it, it, it looks like 40 years and it's it's only 50, like really 15 years. First, I want to know a little bit about what was going on. I mean, I know you played a lot of sports, um, military brat, but how did uh, music come into your life? Like, was there, was are your parents into music, other family? My mom majored in flute at FSU. And my wife went to FSU too.
1: Oh, that's awesome. My brother teaches there now. I mean, our whole oh, family's really? Seminoles. You know, like my, my grandma went there when it was an all-women's school. So everyone oh, really? went. My parents went oh, there. So, yeah, my mom was giving flute lessons in the house when I was a kid, but I didn't really think much of it. You know, I mean, I grew up like listening to my dad's classic rock and Stevie Wonder yeah. and Zappa and stuff like that. So, I you know, I, I loved music from a young age, but I never thought about playing it. But my brother, who's five years older than me, you know is as a prodigy so he was bringing home new instruments and learning them in like a month and all this kind of stuff and so right. eventually I, I just kind of started noodling on guitar and then he got me like a jazz lesson for my birthday or something you know on guitar right. and then i heard like a 251 to the 4 and it changed my life i mean that sounds stupid yeah. but actually it's true i, I was like yeah. i can't believe how this sounds yeah and then that's where it all started sliding downhill yeah and when did you, and you picked up a bass at 17 yeah, late. Yeah, I start. Yeah. yeah, I started guitar late to like fourteen, and then yeah. there was no guitar player in my high school jazz band. Uh no bass player in my high school jazz band, we had three guitar players. So normally, you know, you give the bass to the worst guitar player in the band. So <laughs> that's how it went down. That's how I became a bass player. You say, but
0: I mean, you advanced quickly because you were at North Texas soon after that, which is um for people that don't know, one of the best music schools in the country.
1: It is, but when I got in, I sucked. It, it it is one of the best music schools of the country, but they'll take in that moment, at least they they were taking anyone that had promise. Right, right. You know what I mean? Versus other schools that would be like, if you're not here, you're not coming in, you know? So basically I showed up, they allowed me to come, and I showed up and I did my audition. I got like fifteen seconds into my audition sight reading, you know, with a recording and The professor stopped the cassette tape. It was a cassette. Yeah. And was like, Lynn Seaton is his name, uh, incredible guy. And he was like, how long have you been playing? I was like, about a month and a half, I think, on double bass, you know? About a year on electric bass. And he's like, all right, we're going to treat this like a practice audition, you know, because you are way, way behind everyone else at this school. (laughs) And I have it wow. on tape. Actually, I have the recording. I have oh, it on, really? on a cassette. Wow. Because we had to tape, you know, and there yeah, were micro- yeah. microphones in the room and stuff. And he's like, I'm going to give you one year. I'm um, One semester, actually, he said, I'm going to give you one semester to get your shit together. And, you know, they have all these different bands at North Texas, like the 1 o'clock, the 2 o'clock, the 3 o'clock. They're big bands yeah. until the 9 o'clock. And then they have some other big bands. And basically, you know, if you're the best bass player in the school, you play in the 1 o'clock. If you're the one of the worst, you play in the 9 o'clock. And if you're really bad, you don't make any of the bands,
2: right.
1: you know, there's only a few leftovers, like maybe 30 bass slots and six right. unpositioned bass
2: players.
1: And my first right. semester I was unpositioned, you know, and they have this policy that if you go two semesters without placing into a lab band, you know, you got to become a an accountant or a sociologist (laughs) or something. (laughs) You know, they kick you out. So I was biting my nails for the, I mean, but I, you know, that first semester, I was practicing 10 hours a day and like just eating, breathing, sleeping, bleeding music, practicing. And then my second semester, they put me in the second rhythm section in the last band, in the nine o'clock band. So I was like absolute bottom passing grade, you know? And uh, so, yeah, so I just basically kept up with that, like, all, all day practice thing for four years. And, uh, and it was cool. I mean, met a lot of cool people, most, you know, formed Snarky Puppy after my first year of school, mostly because I didn't have anyone who really wanted to play with me at that point. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, it was cool. I mean, college was, it was, it was big. It was a big, it was the biggest period of at least like kind of textual, uh, technical growth that I've ever. Right. Right. I had. mean, that sounds, it's funny because it sounds so
0: much like the lettuce, Um, how it was formed. It was, yeah. I mean, we were all at Berkeley and kind of all the outcasts from like every other band, you know? So we, we found each other by like, we would, you know, practice in these little ensemble rooms and I met Deitch and then I met and then I met Schmeens. And then by the end, like that, we would, <laughs> it was kind of messed up, but we would like tear down the like little schedule thing and put things on the little glass so we could go in there. And it was actually technically really just a drum room, but we would fit all our amps stacked on each other and sit in there and play. And, you know, Deitch was actually a little bit more like he wasn't, he ended up in the gospel band and some of the other things. But um, when I was there, you know, most of us were just kind of the 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 dregs that couldn't really be in the jazz group or the or the like advanced whatever group um so we all like got together uh which because we didn't have a way to like let it out
1: (laughs) that's awesome i didn't know that i i would have thought the opposite about y'all i would have i would have figured it was the opposite
0: no, no, we were all, and I was also just into a lot of different stuff. It was, now Berkeley is so um, different, you know, back then it was like, you either had to be like a jazz guy or like a fusion guy or a, or a metal guy, um, you know, and I was just, I was into like hip hop, I was into, you know, the Grateful Dead, I was into like, you know, John McLaughlin, right. I, I couldn't decide anything. I just knew I loved music, you know, so I was kind of absorbing as much as I could. Um, what? Well, what? When wow. you were practicing, what were you into? Were you? Were you? Was there a specific bass player that you were obsessed with? Or was it? Was there like a band or a kind of even a, an, an era?
1: Man, I was so deficient when I. arrived. I can't overstate that. Like how yeah. how behind. How, I mean, shitty I was as a bass player. It's hard player, for me to believe a, at this point. It is. <laughs> Try to imagine me. it. <laughs> Trust me, just trust yeah. me. And ask anyone in my band that yeah. knew me, my that my first year, you know. My main kind of inspirations as a bass player were and still are, you know, as an upright bass player, Dave Holland and Ray Brown and Jimmy Blanton. Um yeah. but there's not a lot of recordings of Jimmy, but those two specifically, like Dave Holland, Ray Brown, especially Ray. Oh, yeah. Like just
0: I just had Christian McBride on the show and Ray Ray was a big, big topic. <laughs> as one, one of the most soulful I mean, guys on the upright too, just
1: groove. There's a story. I mean, God knows how true this is. Cause I, I wasn't at school, but Ray came to the school the year before I arrived or two years before one of the guys in snarky puppy was at the school at that time. And he said, he walked into the school of music and he heard like the biggest bass sound he'd ever <laughs> heard in his life and probably will ever hear in his life, you know? And he was like, Who is that playing? And he followed the sound. He walked like down the hall, turned a corner, turned another corner, like walked like 40 or 50 seconds. And then the door to the room was closed, apparently. Wow. Wow. And he opened the door and it was Ray Brown playing bass in a room. But the sound was like Barreling out of a closed door and down a hallway, you know, I mean, I don't know, I don't know if that's true, but it's Bob, the guitar player in Strike I Ask him about it. Oh yeah, of course. But I mean, he said it was just like he had this moment where he was like, "Man, I've like, I don't even know what that is." Yeah, you know, I mean, if you've only heard like university level bass players in person, and then you. Experience that. Experience that. It was special, but that was, yeah, that's what I was, I mean, mostly what I was working on was just trying to get my stuff together on the instrument, like technique stuff, tone, time. And this was upright primarily at this point. Oh yeah, North Texas did did not give a crap about electric bass in that moment.
0: We'll be right back after this short break. So you started Snarky around that time and but you were playing were you playing upright at all in Snarky? You were. Oh, okay. Yeah. The the beginnings of Snarky upright was it a totally different sound at that point? You know, was it a smaller uh, yeah. smaller group initially?
1: Yeah, I have a recording of our first gig actually. Yeah, I mean it's like soprano sax and muted bone and flugelhorn and Rhodes only, notes synthesizers. You know, G. Yeah. Young Lee, Young Lee playing Rhodes, and uh, who's a teacher in Seoul now in South Korea. Amazing drummer, John Diedemeyer, who lives in Chicago. He's like a straight ahead and and modern jazz drummer. Incredible. Nate Worth was still. I mean, we a lot of the a lot of the original members are still in the band, half more or less. And it was we played in the coffee shop, uh, Uncommon Ground. Yeah, it was just like a you know bathroom sounding glass room and it was it was different i mean and even in that moment like playing electric and upright bass was kind of like controversial in (laughs) Ortex. like right yeah Yeah, because i I was playing some electric in the band i wasn't playing you know it was like half and half it's just so strange how how quickly i guess it was a long time ago but things do change quickly i i I, you know i saw that school for sure
0: and was the vision for snarky Always for it to be a, a large group and like a collective of sorts.
1: Yeah, I modeled the band after like Avishai Cohen's Unity band. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and another group that was like kind of a a, a little cool blip on the jam band scene. that was called Motorico. It was, okay. Um, I don't know. John Durth I don't know. from Charlottesville, a trumpet player that does works okay. a lot with Dave Matthews. John Molo, the drummer from Phil Lash. Oh yeah, I know John pretty well. Yeah, uh, Bobby Reed, incredible woodwindist from um, uh, uh, Bruce Hornsby's band. Oh yeah, uh, okay. and the guitar player Mo De Rico, the Co. I can't remember his name. Uh, oh, I see. So it was uh, all.
2: Yeah, I think of their he name.
1: also cool. played on the on the on the on the jam band scene. But my brother gave me a record. When, you know, so I, you know, 16 years ago when I started the band, I was doing exactly what I'm doing now, which is just trying to combine different things that I like about different kinds of music or different bands, you know, like, Oh, I really love this thing. How can I incorporate that in a way that, makes sense and is mine and isn't just like a crappy imitation, which of course we were, you know, when we started. And maybe we still are. But you know, I mean, you know, when you start you have to you have to imitate and and it's crazy how I, I can relate to all of
0: this because when Lettuce first started, first of all, we were called Lettuce Collective. I actually had a card that was like Lettuce Collective of musicians. And I used cause, you know car. for me, the gigs didn't pay great too. So it was kind of like, okay, well this guy can do it. On die chat was part of another band that was like having some success. So he couldn't always do it, and I would get different guys. I ended up transferring to Hampshire College, and I would throw gigs there. And I have, it was always changing and evolving. And in the beginning, it was like, okay, let's play Herbie Hancock like Thrust era songs until we write yeah. some that are good enough, you know. And that's you know that's that's the evolution is like figure it out as
1: you go. Man, I have to tell you that y- you all. I didn't discover Lettuce until I was I was playing in a church in Haltom City, Texas, near Fort Worth. Yeah. Maybe I was 22, 21 or twenty-two, and the music director was a guy named Phil Lassiter, who Oh yeah I know Phil. went on to yeah. be Yeah. Went on to be Prince's, you know, NPG horns horn horn arranger and all this stuff. And, you know, has a prolific career as a horn arranger. He was the best. The the music director and the band was Roy Hargrove's RH Factor. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, yeah. I mean, at least the first day that I played, it was JT yeah. on drums, yes. Keith Anderson yeah. on sax, Todd Barzno on guitar, Bernard Wright on keyboards, Bobby Sparks Man. playing organ. That's a band and right there. Yeah, I mean, it was my first gig at a black church in Texas. Yeah. Actually, that day was like my first audition at North Texas. It was like a, you really really need to get your shit together moment. <laughs> yeah. You know, like yeah. it, is, it is really obvious in two notes listening to this band, who is like the new white kid, you know, playing yeah. in the band. Yeah. And, but they were so cool, man. I mean, it was, uh, anyway. So Phil gave me Live in Tokyo on CD oh, Okay, yeah. to check out because I was not playing well <laughs> <laughs> at the church, That's you know. Funny. He was like, yeah. he's like, I like this bass feel. You know, you should check this out, dig into this, learn some of these bass lines. Like I'd like it if you played like this, you know? Right. And so I was like, man, I jammed that record and you know, everything else. But in it, but more than that, lettuce had a really big impact on me as a composer. Just the just the like being so clever with what sounds so simple you know oh da 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 ah yeah yeah it's like you know but it's like no actually that's a grouping of 5 or like you know the thing that makes it funky is like this 16th notes that's being left out or this modulation or you know just stuff that's like that you can totally turn your brain off and dig the crap out of and move to but if you really put your you know put the lens to what's going on it's like a world of of rich deep Musical material and 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 really that's like the you know that's the identity of Snarky Puppy is is right, that right. you know from Avishai's thing to you know Herbie Hancock's Thrust era which is probably you know the sing single biggest influence on Snarky Puppy collectively and and yeah. Lettuce and Roy Hargrove's R H Factor and you know most yeah. of those guys are now in our band now so it makes sense that we'd be following that thing but the thing that that like essence that all of those bands have in common is this idea of like it doesn't have to be boring for it to be deep. (laughs) Right. This is true. You know, it doesn't have to be over your head for it to be like, it can be deep and make you want to groove more because of its depth.
0: You know, you know, having, uh, Mm A tremendous amount of musicality, and then being able to place things just right. Like Herbie, I remember getting into a big argument with this drummer in college, who I kind of wanted to sub at one point on a lettuce gig, and of course it never happened after this after this conversation. <laughs> but I was like, played him like Thrust and and um, uh, Manchild and those oh, records, yeah. and he was like, "Oh man, this era of Herbie Hancock. He's like, that's so. I mean, why don't I mean anyone could just write that those type of songs. I mean, it's just a group, and I just I turned bright red and I was like, no, it's not. Yeah. I was like, well, then play me something that's, that's as infectious as one of these songs. Like I think, like you said, just like, it's so clever the way he was able to put those things together. And I think that by playing those songs helped influence us in our writing and helped us kind of like find our way. And then also mm-hmm. us listening to more current music and, and always like kind of listening to hip hop and listening to, anything that was coming out and like like we also got to live somewhat in a good era of pop music. I mean there's always good in pop music somewhere. I think that that that, that was crucial having all of those um. those influences. And then I think what you've been able to do beyond being such a great player yourself is to assemble the greatest players. And obviously like Miles Davis being the god, you know, in terms of, like, finding the greatest players and preparing the— not even that we're just so great as players, but putting them together in the right ensemble.
1: That's the thing. You know, it is not to say that the guys in Snarky Puppy are not the greatest players. I mean, they're unbelievable players. But I think the real thing that— the greatest bands have, and I am in no way putting Snarky Puppy in this category. But but when I think about Zeppelin or Miles's groups, all of them. <laughs> yeah or Wayne yeah. Shorter's group yes. Or, or, yes. or it's not just about finding a great player. It's about finding the right player for the music and and on the other side of that, creating music that sets up that player to be successful. Mm. right so that like if I know that my drummer has this as a strong point and this as a weak point I need to bear that in mind as I'm composing Mm -hmm. like I need to set up that drummer to be as comfortable and as fluid and and as much themselves as I can possibly be and I think that if that's like your dominant mentality at all times rather than thinking I want to do this if you think what will make these people sound good And you use that as a, as a kind of ethos musically, and then also use it as, as an ethos socially and personally, what will make these people feel more comfortable when we're touring and basically just like putting yourself trying, I'm, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm talking about, this is my objective. I'm not saying that this is what I do day in and day out, but, you know, really trying to think of yourself as a band leader, more like a servant of the people, like a public servant, like our presidents are supposed to be. You know, right, right. like rather than thinking of yourself as the leader that everyone is obliged to follow, thinking of it as like, what kind of situation can I set up here, both musically and socially uh, and logistically, that makes everyone not only happy, but makes everyone um, more likely to be the best version of themselves they can be. Right. I mean, that, and that's not just music. I mean, you think about any restaurateur or uh anyone who's in charge of like lead, in leadership any leadership role anywhere you know i think that's right. like the the really successful combination uh or the magic kind of the magic pill is is that thing and there are great loads of examples of people that are the opposite you know the buddy right. riches that are like my way or the highway total asshole band sounds awesome you know right
0: right um well i think it takes a certain amount of selflessness Combined with great musicality and combined with that um, vision um, to do what you do, um, because to create that environment where you're not the only one that's going to shine, you know what I mean? To kind right. of, you know, create a, a, a moment um, for someone like that's my favorite thing uh, on stage is when there's the moment where someone just elevates not only yeah. beyond the band, but beyond what they've ever done. Totally. You know what I mean? Like I watched the Corey Henry Lingus video, which is like one of the most epic moments I on YouTube on video of anything. <laughs> I'm serious. I've watched that a bunch of times because when I first special. met him and got to know him, I kind of just went down the rabbit hole because I was just like, I I played with him without knowing much about him. I knew he'd played with you guys, and I watched that video like so many times because I've been lucky enough to be in a room where something like that happens, you know what I mean? But to have it on video and captured so well and just like, and captured everyone's reaction to it. It's really special, man. This is the
1: thing that made that video do what it did. That solo is amazing. Yeah. Corey has taken a hundred better solos on that. I mean, like, like if you think that's, you know what I mean? It's like, every night that he's played that solo He's gone to a new place, you know. I mean, at, at a certain point, you know, we were on tour. When he was playing with the band, I mean, we were probably on tour like eight months a year. Nine months a year, we were playing that song a lot. And, and every night it was different. It was like a different concept, a different approach. And just really this feeling, the thing that struck me the most about it was this feeling that I don't need to try to chase what I did last night. Right. This feeling of That's like crucial. abandoning the, the preconception of... How this solo is supposed to go, even just as simple as a contour. Like, oh, the solo has to start sparse and then it has to build and then I'm going to bring in harmony. Like, no, like some nights it came down at the end of the solo. Right. You know, I mean, just his naturalness um, has always always floored me. Just this idea of like, I'm just going to see where the music carries me instead of, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've had that feeling of you're taking a solo. Everybody's looking at you. It's like, I got to make this awesome. And the second that you think I have to make this awesome, you've lost the music. That's my kryptonite.
0: When I actually take a great solo, it's always like, it, it's always like the next one's probably going to suck <laughs> because I'm thinking about that one Definitely. and, and what, uh, <laughs> what I was going to do. And there's no way to recreate it. You know, you got to be in that moment. Yeah. Corey's really, really in the moment. And I think, um, what you guys have created with the band and then watching that evolve into the family dinner, whole concept and albums mm-hmm. has, uh, um, really took it to another level. Cause now you're not, now you're bringing in all these absolutely amazingly talented individuals. And, um, you know, creating something again, that's like, you're saying it's special each time and capturing it. I think that was really inspiring for me and for our whole crew too, was, um, you know, Mm. we first, I think we first met you guys at Bear Creek. And I remember having like this jam session where Sputt played like everything, you know, and I'm watching all these guys. I didn't know who you guys, I was like, man, everyone in this band's amazing, Mm. And I think Louis Cato, who actually was playing with me at the time, like subbed in with you guys. And he was like, oh man, I'm playing with this band. It's it's so killing. And then I heard Bobby Sparks was in the band. And I was already, we had toured with RH Factor a little bit. And I knew Bobby. Oh, yeah. And I was just blown away by everyone in your crew was just crushing. But then, oh, sorry, man. I was trying to talk about the, the family dinner. But the family dinner videos and and the way you guys kind of presented it as this is what it is but it's also an album and it's a band um was so cool because it was like utilizing YouTube and the, and which was like something we never did. We were a little like old, you know, we were like, we were like, oh, we, yeah. YouTube's where the kids just take videos of the show. Right. And, but you guys really made it this awesome looking unique thing that was really your own. Um, so anyway, I'm curious, like, as you set that up, was that very intentional or was it kind of like, let's just capture this and see what happens? I
1: mean, I, I think it's important, you know, when, when you look at like, uh, You know, when you read a book about somebody or you watch a biopic or something, there's always this thing of like uh, um, the, the author or the director always tries to frame everything through some childhood experience, some dominant, you know, childhood experience that like some formative thing that basically, you know, the rest of that person's life are consequences of that moment. You know, that I actually had a had a, a, a conversation with this incredible director and he told me every director makes the same movie. And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, and he was like, give me a director. Give me a director. Every movie's the same. It's all the same thing. The characters change, the setting changes, but it's all the same story with the same message. And I was like, that's total bullshit. And I was like, who can I think that has like a super diverse film catalog? Stanley Kubrick, go. And he's right. like, he hates women and he never had a good connection with his mother. And I was like, what? What do you like? Like, where does that play into Full Metal Jacket? And he's like, how many women are in Full Metal Jacket? And I was like, well, actually, I think it's only the Vietnamese prostitute. And he's like, what happens to her? And you're like, oh, you know? And then I was like, okay, 2001. And he's like, how does the main character die? And he's like, well, he gets separated from the. Or not the main character, but like, you know, tell me how people die or whatever, you know, it's like, oh, well, one of them gets separated from the space, the cord connected to the spaceship. (laughs) And, you know, and we started going down this hole and he's like, did you know that Hal originally was a female voice? But Kubrick realized that it was too on the nose, like too obvious what this film is about. It's about your mother abandoning you. You know, so it's like basically he broke down like seven Kubrick movies into saying that every movie that Kubrick ever made is about your mother abandoning you, you know, it was like really, I mean, you know, I'm not saying that I go 100% with that theory, but it was pretty incredible that he listed it off. And I think with everything with Snarky Puppy, that moment, that thing is just us spending a decade in a van playing for no one who cared. You know that's our mo- that's like our formative experience and like yeah. basically the answer to every question is because no one cared about us because <laughs> right. we played we played a lot of gigs and the only thing that we had to get us through it was love of music and each other so everything kind of has flowed from this this kind of, this, this experience. Um, and I mean, even the formation of the band, me starting a band because I sucked at bass and no one wanted to play with me. Like, it's all coming from this zone of of, or this mentality of like, well, all we've got is like music and, and, and each other. And so the formation of our record label, Ground Up Music, the family dinner thing, all of these initiatives or projects that we've started are just to try to give visibility to people who we feel deserve it that don't necessarily have it. I mean, sometimes, yeah, David Crosby or somebody like that yeah. is on the family dinner. But after David Crosby, it's, you know, Susanna Baca, who people outside of the the Latin music world don't know, or, or yeah. you know, in that moment, Jacob Collier, who wasn't a household name. Everything comes from that. I think it's this idea of like, wow, we love this person's music. They should be more known. Just the, I have this kind of grandiose idea of just over, totally overthrowing all of the popular music in the world.
0: <laughs> well, Not you guys that, have done an amazing job at it already. No, I mean, man. watching. No, we haven't
1: done anything. We haven't done
0: anything. No, well, I mean, Grant. How many Grammys you've been nominated? Four or five times. You've won. I know you've won three. Um, did you, I mean, what was it like when you got that first call of like, you guys are going from the van to the Grammys, you know?
1: Well, we almost went to the Grammys in the van. It was actually yes. uh, because we were, everyone in the band was convinced this is the only time this is going to happen. <laughs> it's just right. because of Layla Hathaway, you know, we did a song yeah. with her and and that was our, our first uh, our first nomination and award. And, and And we were like, we should roll up to the red carpet in a van with a trailer. Like, let's just yeah. do it, you know? And and it was almost unanimous. And Sput, our drummer at the time, was the only one that was like, no. He's like, if this is our only time at the Grammys, you want to go the way that you're supposed to go. Like, let's get yeah, a limo. It, right? We're like, we don't have any money, you know? I mean, there have been so yeah. many moments like that where people really think, oh, you got nominated for a Grammy. You must be – or, oh, you you know, your record's number one on iTunes. You, mu-. I remember when our first – the first time we we had a, a record that was number one on iTunes, which doesn't mean very much, but it's something, especially if you're a band like ours that went a long time without anything. The morning we found out about that, we were driving from Austin, Texas to New Orleans in my van that had no air conditioning in the middle of August right. or September. The whole band was without shirts, sleeping on the floor and the benches of the van, sweating. You know, no one had any money. And I'm, we were like going to take a photo and be like, you know what it's like to be number one? <laughs> like <this. laughs> wow. Like, you know, I mean, it's, it was like that for a decade.
0: Yeah. We've had, we've had a lot of those moments. So live rolled up to opening for the Rolling Stones and like a dented up cab because everything had fallen through with our gear like bungee corded to the top. Um, so yeah, that, that, that we've been there. I actually was at the Grammys the year, the first year you guys won. And my favorite moment in the entire thing, I was nominated with pretty lights and, and we lost to Daft Punk. Of course we'd won oh, wow. like everything that year. Yeah. It was like the pre program or the pre ceremony. And I remember seeing all you guys and I was like, Oh, it's the homies. And, uh, that moment, you guys, you could probably like hear me going, yeah, like if somewhere in the <laughs> audience. Cause like you guys rolled up like 12 deep and we're like, oh, yeah. just, you guys were the most stoked of anyone. Oh, yeah. in, Cause I remember so kidding? many people had like their manager. Cause you know, the pre-show is like. Not, right. the not the most real Grammys
1: yeah, yeah. Well
0: it is it is, But it's like You know Most people have like Their representative Just go get it and, not, and you guys rolled up there And it was like This party on stage And it was like The most energetic moment Of the day um, oh, And it made, it made it It was my highlight of the day Because we oh, lost That's um, sweet at, I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> that
1: was, It was awesome <laughs> To see you guys there And to take it home I mean it just all comes from I hate to beat a dead horse That's a horrible expression I hate to say the same thing Over and over again But the, you know, it really just comes from this idea of like, holy shit, something is happening that's good. Everybody just take advantage of it because it'll never happen again. <laughs> so that's why right. we brought the whole band. I was sixteen of us, I think, at the Grammys 16, that year with yeah. Layla, because yeah. we we were treating it like we're definitely going to lose. Kendrick Lamar was in that category hiatus coyote featuring q-tip we were like there is no way we're winning this so let's just go as a group let's enjoy this moment like let's celebrate just the fact that someone looked at us you know and uh and 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 then we won which was a huge surprise and then you know the next time we got nominated we were like okay well you know we thought that was a fluke but like you know, maybe this is just like a hangover from that. So this will probably be the last time. You know, we looked at the category and all. Everybody was super strong, and so we had everybody. You know, we had everybody come. <laughs> we invited the whole band again. You know, everyone. You know, our you know manager, like assistant, like just everybody came yeah. just to make it a party. Because um, for me, that was really what those awards were about. It's like, you know, if you win, you lose. It's about people voting. It's like being homecoming king or queen in a certain kind of way. You hope that everybody's voting with their heart but and with their, you know, considering music, but sometimes they don't and and you don't have any control over that and music is not for awards. So like, what can we use this event for? Let's use it to celebrate the journey that we've had together and all the fucking nights we slept on people's floors with our backpacks as a pillow and, you know, it, it all just kind of goes back to that Uh, And that's where the, and that's why I think the band, why it is the way that it is, because it's really easy to be humble. Like for me, it's very easy to be humble in the band because everyone's better than, I'm like the fourth best bass player in my band. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like you hand the bass to Mark, he sounds awesome. Like Bobby Sparks on key bass, Justin Stanton on key bass, Sean Martin on key. It's like, like, I'm really like the fifth. Probably in line in terms of like real, like that's what you want to hear on a, from a bass instrument. So for me, it's like, it's super easy. And I think a lot of the, the people in the band feel that way because with such a big group and because the emphasis is not on money or crowd or whatever, the emphasis is really on the music. It's like if your ears are open, someone's having a good night every night. And I know right. you know that feeling with a right. big band like Lettuce that yeah, every cool. night it's somebody's night. And if you're lacking inspiration, you look around the stage and someone's on fire and you latch onto their thing and, and, and you get a hold of it. And that simultaneously keeps you from thinking that you're hot shit because you're like, damn, they're playing their ass off tonight and I'm not.
0: Yeah, I remember when I met the Lettuce guys, I was, you know, so far behind, so, you know them in terms of, you know, so that, that was, they were my best teachers, you know, I mean, I had amazing teachers as well, but not that I played with every single day, you know, that just pushed me constantly, you know, so I think being in a amazing group like that is such a blessing, you know, on so many levels. I was going to ask you a little bit more about the label and, and, uh, Forming the label, and then eventually, you know, Ground Up also became a music festival, Mm -hmm. which uh, I've been to, which was an amazing experience, and uh, just to see that huge crowd um, with such a diverse schedule of music and so many people. I was huge fan. I happened to be in town visiting my dad. I don't know if you remember this. I think I called you. I was like, "Hey, man, you guys having a festival? I'm coming. I brought my dad." And my dad loved it. Like we both loved it so much. It was like half stuff I was a huge fan of and half I left a huge fan of. So I think they're tied together, I guess. I think I just asked you like eight questions at once because I was excited. But um, just tell me a little about the formation of, uh, of Ground Up.
1: I mean, it, basically, we started the label as a sub label on Rope It Up Records in Philly because we were with Rope It Up at that time, but I had the desire and i know many of the guys in the band had the desire to to try to elevate the status of some of our friends in new york because we were all in new right. york struggling right. but snarky puppy was starting to get a foothold you know we were in like right. year yeah like year 10 or then or something you know or year eight or something it was like oh, okay we can see some momentum even though we don't see any results we see that there's something happening and we wanted to get other artists on that train with us so that The people who were starting to pay attention to Snarky Puppy would pay attention to those artists, you know? Because it sucks to, like, see a great artist, a truly great artist that no one knows about. That sucks. Right. It's just, it's inexcusable. You know what I mean? It's like, and then you see people that are really well-known, and you're like, man, what? Why this? What is happening here? I mean, everybody has their taste, and that's the beautiful thing about music is, there's no good, there's no bad. We all say, maybe we think differently, you know. But, you know, it's all about what you like, you know. I mean, whatever. It's same with wine, right? There's great wines, there's crappy wines. But if you like a crappy wine more than a great wine, you're actually very lucky because then you have a very cheap, <laughs> you know, uh, in, enjoyment uh, uh, fare, you know. The thing with starting that label was just that we wanted to open up our fan base to artists that we knew and loved from New York. And diverse right. ones too, you know, not just instrumental jazz groups or whatever. Because really no one in Snarky Puppy listens to that. <laughs> you know, exactly. we're all listening to other things and then we put it together and it sounds like what it sounds like. But, so that's why we did it. And, and it worked slowly, but it worked. And then eventually we, we left RoboDope and we partnered with Universal and they carried our, our records for three years. And then we went fully independent and we have been for uh, four years now, I think. And then we started a festival for the exact same reason in Miami, just like, okay, what's the, what's the physical manifestation, the live in-person manifestation of the label's mission? And that is to put these artists physically in front of people who are standing there listening to them at a festival.
2: Right.
1: Um, and the thing maybe that's different about that festival is that we intentionally try to avoid booking the bands that every festival books. Right. You know, right. to a certain extent. I mean, we had you all there. You guys play loads of festivals. We had, you know, Robert Glasper, you know, Esperanza Spaulding or or, um, Lila Downs. They all, you know, but we sprinkle artists that are very well known in like you all. But in general, we really just try to find artists that are dope that no one's ever heard of. And our goal is exactly what you said happened to you, actually, which made me feel warm and fuzzy inside, which is like I want it as a discovery point. I want people coming in, knowing nothing and leaving with like forty discographies to check out. That's the mission and and eventually, I would love for the festival to be blind, right, where we don't announce any artists at right, all ever. Right. Like, like you don't that. know who's going to play until they walk on stage and then you're like oh wow you know and because the festival's so small it's only 2000 people we'll never grow it i don't ever want to grow it you know the the musicians feel very comfortable just being in the audience and walking around so eventually when the festival's blind you could be standing next to i don't know you know herbie hancock and not know right. if he's going to play or if he's just yeah. hanging out you know or whatever so that's kind of the idea
0: we'll be right back after a quick message from our sponsors Tell me about linking up with David Crosby. Uh, I love that project and I love the band. Um, And I know a little bit, I I think he became a fan of Snarky and maybe tweeted at you guys or something, but I want to hear a little
1: bit of that story, if you don't mind. He was shown a video of us on YouTube by a member of his band. I think his keyboard player. You know, David is like, He's like the opposite. He's like the doppelganger of Donald Trump. You know, his like his way of dealing with Twitter is the exact same. He's like super impulsive, doesn't give a shit about what anyone thinks. He just says what right. he thinks. But he's just like thinks the opposite about everything than Donald Trump. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like in terms of the way, <laughs> like he, he he's the polar opposite in terms of how he thinks. But in terms yeah. of like the 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 process and
2: yeah, so yeah. he's
1: very entertaining on Twitter. If you don't follow him, I'd, I'd recommend it. Yeah. Um. But he, uh he just started tweeting like incessantly, like four or five videos a day of us. And after yeah. like five or six days of it, my aunt sent me a message like, you should call him. I was like, what do I do? Open the yellow pages and look for Crosby, David, like, you know, yeah. you don't just call someone like that. And she said, send him a message. So I sent him a message on Twitter and he hit me right back. And then I said like, do you want to talk? And, he said, "Sure," and I remember we were on, in Singapore on tour, and I called him, and we were getting our artist list together for Family Dinner One, Two, Family Dinner Two, and we talked about absolutely nothing for like an hour, just like total bullshitting. And uh, and then I I was like, "Hey, man, can I ask you something?" And he said, "Yeah, yeah, I'll do it." And I was like, "What? Do what?" <laughs> He's like, "You want me to play?" He's like, "You want me to play on your next record?" I know I know you're you're like hiring people right now. Like, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> and I was like. <sighs> Uh, okay, cool, man. Great. So he came, he played family dinner too. And then he asked me to produce a record for him. Uh, wow. and then, and, and so now I've produced two for him. One that's just basically me and him called lighthouse. Yeah. Um, just the two of us playing and singing and Corey and Bill from snarky puppy have a little appearance. And then on the last track, Becca Stevens and Michelle Willis have an appearance. They were also on family dinner. Too. Yep. So he was hip to them, loved them, and the four of us are on that track together. And David loved that so much that uh, that we decided to make a band out of that. Right. Uh, right. So we went on tour with that band, and then we made a record with that band that's called Here If You Listen, which I actually like a lot more than 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 Lighthouse because it it, it feels like a CSNY kind of vibe. Everyone's singing lead at different moments. We're always singing four part harmony together. It's not really clear. That there's a leader although it is but you know what i mean it's interesting even though i was like technically you know the the main producer whatever fab dupont who's an incredible producer out of flux studios in new york um was was really um running the ship in most ways on that record um and and actually the four of us david michelle beck and i kind of co-produced it together with fab you know it was like the five of us all doing it Which was really interesting because on certain moments someone would just take the helm, which was really nice. And what was really interesting about that record also is that everybody has a different weakness and a different strength. Everyone was insecure about certain things that everyone else is very secure about and vice versa. So it created some really beautiful and interesting situations where everyone at a certain point had to be vulnerable and kind of lay themselves on the line and submit. And what was the writing
0: like? Did he kind of come to you with full songs, or were you involved in that process? Did he bring you kind of sketches? I'm curious how that how that came together.
1: For here, if you listen, the second album, Becca, Michelle, David, and I all came to my studio in New York, Atlantic Sound, that I that I used to have with Deco Shoterma, and we all brought scraps, song scraps, and we'd play the scrap. And someone would say, I definitely hear a chorus or, oh, I love that lyric. What if we turned it into this? And then we just would sit down and write the four of us together. Or someone would say, just let me take this home. I'll bring you something tomorrow. You know, I'll add something to your idea and then let's see where we go. And it was incredible, especially the lyric writing was incredible because we'd be like, what, what lines next? Like, what can rhyme with this that says this? But someone would say something Everybody like, no, you know, what next? You know, it was so open and to have David Crosby be one of those four people is incredible.
0: That's what I was going to say. That must be such a cool experience to do that
1: with him. I mean, you know, very, very humble.
0: Yeah.
1: I, you know, in 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 that respect, it's like mind bogglingly humble to have three people who are half your age telling you, no, 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 I don't like that lyric, David. That word sucks. Let's find another one. And him be like, yeah. okay. <laughs> Amazing. And, and on the first record, actually, that was very different because it was just David and I writing. Man, this is a super cool writing process. Maybe you've done it before or maybe you, it'll, it'll give you an idea of, of, of something to do in the future, but i had never done this before. But David had all these kind of concepts that he wanted to approach, but he didn't necessarily have lyrics written. So I just told him, like, babble, just talk. Like, what do you think about, like, the first song we wrote was called Somebody Other Than You. And it's about politicians who send other people's kids to war instead of their own, you know? Right, right. He said he wanted to write a song about that. And I was like, like, who? Like, how does it make you feel? Like, what kind of person does that? Like, what, you know, I would just ask him questions and he would just babble stream of consciousness. He wouldn't be autocritical or wouldn't judge himself. Nothing. Just babble. And I would write down everything and then I'd be like, take a nap, you know, (laughs) like chill for two and a half hours. And I'd try to find the story in the stream of consciousness and I'd pick phrases that I loved and modify them or not modify them. And kind of like rather than like creating a story, it was more like chiseling out the sculpture in the stone. You know what I mean? Right, right. Did, were there times where the
0: initial concept changed once it was spit out and then kind of given back, like regurgitated?
1: Big time. There was one that, yeah. he, wanted, that he wanted to write about the refugee crisis. And he started saying all these things. And, and, and I looked at the lyrics and I was like, man, this could be about anyone that doesn't get noticed on the street. Like any person that you walk by and you see, but you don't see. You know what I mean? Mm. Like this song could be about them. And that song ended up being called, um, look in their eyes. So it was basically like a call to kind of try to create a human connection with people that go largely ignored, not just refugees, right? everyone that kind of lives their life in the shadows, you know, um, as a, as a kind of an extra in our films as, as kind of privileged fortunate people, you know, um, and uh, so that was really interesting That song I, I, I still really love Friend out of shadow He's wandering he Knows no country No god or king You're missing when you pass passing What I love most about that writing process Is that You have to turn off the judge inside of you. If you're writing a song and you say, okay, I'm going to write this song about love, whatever, you know, what's the first line? And you can be stumped. How do I start a song about love? You know how to – but with this process, you let everything just come out. You write, you put your pen on the paper and you write and you don't stop writing or you talk and record yourself or whatever. Or you have a conversation with somebody – and you just don't judge anything. Nothing is dumb. Nothing is brilliant. It's just all stuff. Yeah. And you leave the, 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 the critical part for the analysis. Right. Because I think often we stop ourselves in life in general. We stop ourselves before we start because we're just judging ourselves, you know. And I like this because it postpones that. Well, you probably
0: find this in the music too. Like uh, when you're writing the musical parts – um, some of the best compositions, at least for me, come out of spur of the moment. You know, spon- they're they're spontaneous, and it's that same thing. But you don't think about doing it with lyrics as much. Um, but with music, oftentimes it's like, okay, you're playing, you're playing, you stumble across something that wasn't even what you intended to play initially, and that's usually the best mm. stuff. You know, absolutely,
1: yeah. But I, because I, I think music is not this like super lofty kind of you know pie in the sky thing it's just a it's a basic expression of emotion and 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 an attempt to communicate and to create empathy right you know it, it's a very natural thing and obviously the more trained we are we should become more fluid you know in that in that uh, I don't even want to say art form, even though of course it's an art form. But you know what I mean in that yeah. pr- in that practice of right, like, right. I feel this. I want you to understand how I feel. Boom, you know, the music comes out. Right, um, right. That should be our objective. And and but I think, yeah. I mean, God, if I were nine years old right now, looking at Instagram, seeing five year old bass players like playing the solo, Willie Weeks's solo to you know, it's so different from the way that human beings have learned music and passed it on throughout all of human history of this kind of thing. That's a part of our culture, a part of our community, a part of our neighborhood, a part of our home. It gets passed down in this musical way. People are still shedding their butts off when they're three years old, you know. Um, but I mean, I don't know. Maybe hype has always been a thing. Maybe, you know, I, I. it's hard for me to believe that now it's the same as it always has been. But maybe it's just an extension of what it what it was and and now we have more tools and we have more access and that's beautiful.
0: There's more tools, there's more volume and well there's so much access obviously to every realm of music like I can think something and seconds later I have access to seeing as much information as I can consume about it. Yeah. It's incredible. Um, I think the dangerous thing sometimes is like comparison, you know, like you like kids will go on Instagram and just see these unrealistic situations that aren't even really necessarily real that they're seeing, right. but um, that comparison can be really hard on a kid trying to do something or an, or an, or an adult, you know, <laughs> like I see these kids ripping on guitar and I'm like, oh man, this is, uh, um, yeah. you know, I'm fucked but um yeah totally you know i think the important thing is taking it and being like oh well that's cool and like using it as inspiration and as not not to um kind of deter you from anything but uh yeah i mean ultimately the tools are amazing though and we have to be thankful for that to a certain degree
1: absolutely and i think that's why you see so many young musicians just playing at such a high level. And and also, you know, now because of that technology, we have the ability to see those young musicians playing right. well. Whereas, you know, some six-year-old kid in Serbia 30 years ago that was a prodigy, maybe no, the world would never know about them. Right. And now right. the world knows, you know. And that's – I think it's all moving in a great direction. But I do think that sometimes it can be a little overwhelming and can pollute – it can become a barrier between who we are and what the purpose of music is at times, that Instagram thing that like, yeah, that competitive, that competitive spirit, which you don't need an Instagram to be crippled by, by, by competitiveness, you know, but that, yeah, it's a brave new world. You know, it's like, nobody knows what's, what's going on out there. It's very heavy. It's a very heavy, heavy subject.
0: Um, What do you have going on now? Are you, are you writing for, for new projects? Uh, Anything on the horizon? Obviously, touring is a, a big question mark, but uh, what what do you have happening creatively right now?
1: When the COVID thing hit, um, I took like a really pessimistic stance towards the future in the hopes of not deceiving m- my posse, you know, my, my, my bands or my label or myself into thinking that things would be normal soon. So, we immediately started doing other things. We did, you know, master classes with different members of the band every night for months, and started doing all these other things. Now, you know, right now, six of the artists on our label are are writing original scores to silent films um, for the Alamo Draft House. You know, these kinds of initiatives that that have like kept people working, not waiting for clubs to open. And this year, I'm equally pessimistic about going on tour so my the goal that I set for myself this year was to because I've been producing more it's I'm I'm really in love with it and passionate about it and um so my goal for this year is to produce 12 records like one one record a month and the first one is my solo record which uh you know I've been procrastinating forever the document actually with all the songs in it and all my notes and stuff is called solo album 2015 (laughs) uh which tells you how good it procrastination uh I am and but you know with COVID it's like man let's do it you know yeah, so I so I finally it. wrote this yeah I wrote the songs and recorded it and actually uh 30 minutes after we uh hang up I'm gonna do the last mixing session so tom- tonight wow. cool, tonight I'll have the final mixes and and it's you know it's different because I'm pl- it's a pop record yeah uh like a weird pop record I'm singing and playing all the instruments and you know I don't play drum sets so all the percussion's like Turkish and Moroccan percussion, and so it's going to be weird, but... Cool. I'm excited to hear that. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's awful. I don't know. That's the really interesting thing is, like, with Snarky Puppy or Bocante, you know, the two bands that I lead, I I feel like I have, like, a 60% sense of awareness of whether something's cool or whether it totally sucks. But with no one around me, like, except the engineer and co-producer Nick Hard, like, without other musicians or knowing that it's mine, I have zero fucking perspective right right not a lick like it could be the worst audio recording in the history of mankind you know what i mean (laughs) or it could be or 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 it could be like abbey road times a million and i would which it's not and and i wouldn't have any idea i just don't know i have no
0: are you the type of guy that sends tracks to you to people do you have like your 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 uh inner circle where you're kind of like, is this, is this good? Or do you just kind of leave it till it's, it's ready
1: when I'm working on other people's records? No, I don't send it out for snarky puppy records or Boa Conte records. I've only sent them out when I was sure they sucked. (laughs) Like, (laughs) you know, I definitely sent out, uh, the uh, two snarky puppy records ago. I definitely sent that out to like 10 people I trust. And I was like, I want the truth. Like, is this terrible? Because I don't know anything about this and in the case of this album the solo record especially with the singing thing because that's like a whole nother world of 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 uh, low self-esteem and vulnerability and all that kind of stuff in this case I actually sent the demos to five people and I said like is this worth making a record do you see something cool in this or is this just going to be a waste of time and money and and I also told them like tell me two songs you hate and two songs you love And I'm going to do the same now before mastering because I want to cut one or two songs, but I don't know which songs to cut just for time. So I'm going to send it to probably, yeah, exactly about 10 people. And I'm going to ask, I'm going to say, pick two singles and pick two for the trash can. And any other thoughts on any other songs, let me know, because I just don't know. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. I I have been sending it to a few people about what should be a single and what should be, because that part, I really have no idea. Because at this point, you know, my favorite song is usually the last one I did, hopefully. Of course. But yeah, that's it's an interesting process. So so a record every month, and I'm assuming these other ones will be different projects, different artists.
1: Yeah, this is the only one that's mine. Right. Uh, right. So I'm, I'm doing one for uh, a Taka Quartet, which is the, uh, a classical quartet from, but like very experimental classical quartet that's based out of New York. They won the Grammy last year for Best Chamber Music Recording. Um, Becca Stevens' husband, Nate Schram. I know you know oh, Becca. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, is 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 in that quartet. Awesome, cool. really incredible. And they're realizing electronic music compositions. So like Square oh. Pushers involved, Daedalus is involved, and Miller's wow. involved, Louis Cole. So like it's all about you know the opposite of what normally happens with ele- electronic music production of taking something acoustic and messing with it in in electronic. World, this is the opposite. It's like, how do we put this on acoustic instruments, but also mess with it? You know, so that'll be fun. And then the one after that will be um, a record with an Indian artist named Varijashree Venugopal. That's super incredible. I'm gonna do one in Morocco with uh, Aganawa Malim uh, Hamid oh. Al Kasra. Uh, a duo record with Bill Lawrence, uh, just oud and piano. Wow. But we, we did a tour during the quarantine. Well, during during August of last year, Italy was like open. Yeah. And for outdoor festivals with social distancing. And we did a duo tour and that was so fun. We thought we should write some music for it. C4 Trio, That's they played the festival once. It's three Venezuelan quattro players oh, wow. and a bass player. And it is like, this band is one of the best live bands you'll ever see. It's crazy. Wow. I mean, and, you know, I don't know, six or seven more or something that I didn't name, but really just trying to dive into music from different parts of the world from artists that I really like to work with and believe in and are good people in in addition to being good artists. And I'm super, I've just always been into folkloric music. So for me to have the opportunity to work with kind of heavyweights in that world is like a, it's like a double dose of learning, you know? Right, right. And that's one of the reasons why I moved to Spain because none of these records pay, you know, much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like if you're yeah. working with like a, you know, a, a folkloric Moroccan musician, it's like, uh, you're, it's not gonna, you know, totally just like rock your bank account. So I, right. I, one of the reasons why I moved here was so that I could live cheaper. Right. So that I could spend my time. Cause in New York, you know, it's so expensive. It's like, well, I don't want to play this gig. I don't want to do this session. I don't want to produce this record, but in order for me to survive, I got to do it. And then I'll do two fun things. But actually living here, I don't really have to do anything that I don't like. I feel like, uh, you know, at least
0: at my, my evolution. And as I get older, that's all I really want is to be able to do the things that I love. I mean, it seems so simple, but if like when you're 25, that's like, you know, I mean, of course we're playing music, we're doing the thing, but you know, it, it, you want money, you want success, you want all these things. But more than that, as, um, every year goes by, it, it crystallizes clearer and clearer that just doing, um, the projects that really make us, you know, inspire us and, and, um, Mm. make us want to do more after, you know.
1: Is that why you did your, your solo record now?
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, this is—I've done a a couple. Well, I did one solo record where it was like this weird concept record, but I'm singing on it, and then I made one before that that was more of like a rock and roll kind of record. Yeah, but yeah, this one I really got to make it and and like spend time with it and get to do it in my mm-hmm. own studio. I did. I worked with a, a producer who has a studio in San Francisco, Otis McDonald, and we sent things back and forth and worked satellite, which is the first time I've really done that. And also the first time I've been able to like sit in my own studio and, you know, I've had my own studio in various places for years, but it was always when I was in there to pay the bills, I had to produce records, you know, and I was always working on other people's things before my own, you know, when the pandemic hit, obviously it was a horrible, horrible thing. But when I kind of realized I could spend as much time as I want getting the synth sound, and this, and like really work on like my vocals in a way without like 10 people in the room going, all right, you're going to, you know, just like being able to sit there and like, Ooh, uh, like a drink, you know, drink tea in the morning and be like, Ooh, and get an idea and just go right into my studio. And that's never happened for me in my 44 years. So, um, you know, and to get a record to a place where I was really happy with it, where it wasn't like, "Oh, I got one day between this tour and that tour to like cut all the solos, you know, or like one where i I got to like spend time like tweaking a guitar pedal for two hours until it was where I wanted it, you know all those little things it was a a really cool experience, and it makes me want to keep doing it that way, you know if possible, but I've kind of considered that the silver lining of all of this um also being with my oh, yeah. family in you know the this time period has been you know kind of amazing i'm almost like i don't want to tell people how like happy i am during this time cuz i'm like it's i know there's a horrible things happening all around me um but the ability to slow down has been really amazing
1: yeah and and no one no one's life is made better by you forcing yourself to be unhappy this is true. You know what I this mean? Like, I, I've, I've, like, yes, the world is, is in a super messed up place right now. But actually, like, the best thing you can do for the world is make yourself happy, I think. Absolutely. Because we're going to be emerging from this thing with a lot of people in very bad places mentally and emotionally and socially after not being able to touch people or talk to people or have dinner with, you know, all the things that, like— you know like we are watching a nature like an alien nature documentary on us right now you know right like you know when uh when a human animal is separated from its herd for you know blah 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 it become it, it's really like that you know i mean we watch sure. shit about penguins and they say well oh, what do you mean when the penguins family ex you know kicks them out they just like go into the wilderness and die alone or go not it's it's us right now like you know, I think we're learning a lot about ourselves as a species also about like, well, I didn't realize that having dinner with my friends or having a beer with my friend at the bar is actually like a, a biological need. It is. It's not a hobby. It's not an interest. It's a, it's a thing that I physically need for the chemicals in my brain to tell me that I'm happy and that I belong to a tribe or whatever, you know what I mean? Right. So I think I, I I'm with
0: you. Enjoy it if you can enjoy it. Enjoy it for sure. I mean, I, the things that I do miss are those things, and I but I also realize how great those moments are, and also these conversations that I've been able to have with mm. my friends and people that um, that I admire um, has been really cool and inspiring. Um, for me, but also, you know, my, my wife and I, it's like so crazy. We go out, you know, we don't really go anywhere, but even with, at, the, at some point we have like a social distant hang with, you know, a friend and talk for a couple hours and have a glass of wine. And we're like, wow, that felt so good, awesome. you know? And before it was kind of like, you, you know, I think we we're, we're, we're appreciating all the people we love more and all the musical experiences that we get to have. And, um, so I think coming out of this, the appreciation level will be, will be really high when we get to experience some of those things that we may have taken for granted before, you know,
1: until the second sound check. <laughs> and yeah, then, exactly. and then everyone will just go back to being assholes and hating soundcheck. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah the, first sure. soundcheck's gonna awesome. the first soundcheck is going to be awesome. First soundcheck is going to be so happy.
0: much fun, man. And when that feedback happens, we'll be like, oh, remember that? Oh, that, that's good. Oh, oh I love it.
1: Yeah, I really think it's important that we, if we're able to use this bizarre, prolonged experience and situation as as an opportunity to get into new things or or. Or to have realizations or to develop new skills or crabs, or or thoughts or states of mind. If we're able to make ourselves happy, it's like it's actually kind of like our responsibility in a way to do it. You're you know, because right. people right. are suffering. They're not going to suffer any more or less based on how happy or unhappy you are. Sister. You know, like we can do what we can to help. And and of course, absolutely we we should. Being unnecessarily miserable is not doing any favors for anybody so you know and i am personally i'm really interested to see about all the art that's gonna just like explode yeah. when when things kind of get back to normal and all you know you made a solo record i mean like, everyone's everyone's making yeah doing yeah. things yeah. it's that gonna be the roaring
0: did. 20s all over again that's what my brother keeps saying which Oof. is definitely bring
1: it on i hope bring so Well, I'm going to leave
0: it on a positive note. I think that
1: was... (laughs) Hey, man, we have a new president Um, today. There's nothing to be negative about. Yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) Um, but I just want to say thanks, man. Really appreciate you taking the time, being on the show. Um, Also, thank you for broadening musical horizons for not only myself, but so many people. Um, I, I know you're aware of that to a certain degree, but I think that's something that you're appreciated for everywhere. So thank, thank
1: you. you. No, thank you, man. I mean, like I said earlier, you know, Lettuce and, and, and I mean, so, I mean, you know, all the projects that you've been a part of have, have ha- had a big, a big impact on not just me and my sense of, you know, my, my musical journey or whatever, but like, you know, our community and our generation and, and, uh you know, that stuff. It, it, it's good to celebrate it you know, I'm, I'm very great. Like I said, you know, that record, I mean, I I just pinned it down to that moment, but it's much more than that moment. I mean, all the live shows I've seen and stuff and, and, you know, we all, we're only capable of playing the music we've heard in our lives. Right. And like, you know, you all, your music has, has, you know, gotten in me and my community and, and it's great, man. It's such a beautiful thing how that, how that works so, uh, for me it's like a total pleasure to be on here and also like you said cause I'm we're not like I'm not talking to anybody you know I know I'm sick of hearing what I have to say <laughs> you know so, I know I
0: like... love getting in here I lock the door I would just get in to just just nerd out on music and yeah. whatever else is going on um, totally But, uh, yeah, and and I just want to say, you know, you guys have inspired us as well. My whole, you know, Lettuce, Soul Live, watching what you guys have done um, has in turn inspired us. Um, So, yeah, I just look forward to seeing you in person and hopefully playing music and doing a project. Who knows?
1: One of these days Uh, will be fun. i would be more than happy to any time.
0: All right. Thanks again, man. Really
1: appreciate it, Michael.
0: I want to thank Michael League for being on the show So cool to hear about his story and catch up with him. Before we go, I'm going to play a track from the Snarky Puppy album called We Like It Here. And this track is called Lingus. Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer, produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kras. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email Kras plus one at gmail. That's k r a z p l u s o n e at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time.